Hey, my name's Matt Kennedy, and this is the Steadfast Podcast. This podcast exists to use Bible study and theological teaching to encourage you to be steadfast in your faith. Thank you for taking time out of your day to check out the Steadfast Podcast. I hope today's episode is an encouragement to you. Jesus is still preaching to the crowds, working through a sermon. Last week we talked about how this preaching event turned interactive with a request from the crowd that turned into a real teaching moment. In today's episode, we will see the interactive nature of this day continuing. But this time, the crowd doesn't offer a request, but rather some news, and they might be seeking some input from this great teacher. So on today's episode, we are going to pick up in Luke chapter 13, verse 1. Quote, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. End quote. So there's some in the crowd that have to tell Jesus about some troubling current events. There were some Galileans who had apparently traveled to Jerusalem to make sacrifices at the temple. But while they were there making their sacrifices, Pilate had them killed. They didn't have the language of hate crime back then, but for the Jews, the outrage over this event would have surely been very similar to that. We don't know much else about this event. We can only infer that they were even in Jerusalem because they were making sacrifices. So the question for us to ask is this, why would Pilate do this thing? We know during this time the Jews and the Romans, they didn't have the most stable of relationships. So executing people while they are in the act of worship does seem to be the equivalent of tossing a lit match on a tank of gas. It just does not seem wise for someone who is personally motivated to keep the peace in this region to do something like this. I mean, too much of a disturbance and Pilate could be easily removed and replaced. The ancient historian Josephus tells us that Galilee was known to be a problematic region for the Romans. They had frequent unrest and frequent resistance. Acts even mentions one such instance in chapter 5, verse 37, quote, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered, end quote. Now, historians can fill in the gap a little bit more about this Judas the Galilean. We know he raised resistance to the Romans because he, and well, a lot of Jews at the time, didn't think it was right for them to pay taxes to Rome. So, Galileans were known as resistors of Rome. It was their reputation. Now, let the listener understand that we are moving from what we know as historical context into where I am just going to speculate, okay? So, based on what we know of the historical and biblical context, I think there were a group of Galileans who had traveled to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, while they were there at this Jewish festival, probably having a great time, they were making sacrifices, and some Romans who were there identified them as Galileans, maybe by their accent or some other thing about them. And when the Romans considered all the unrest that had been happening over the the previous number of years, these Romans, the soldiers, the officials, whomever, decided it was better to go ahead and play it safe. They're going to assume the worst about these Galileans, and they're just going to kill them. And it turns out the opportunity came while they were there making their 
sacrifices. Now, these Galileans may have had nothing to do whatsoever with any unrest or any rebellion, but they were possibly wrong place, wrong time, wearing the wrong jersey, and the Romans sought to make an example out of them, hoping that the example they made would go a long ways to keep the peace. No matter the exact details of the story, that's one possibility. There's probably others. That's just kind of the set of things that makes the most sense to me. But you can understand why people were alarmed by this, and why people listening to Jesus preach would want to take this opportunity to bring it to his attention and maybe get his perspective on it. So what is his perspective? Let's move on to verse 2. We're going to see Jesus take this to be a teaching opportunity. Quote, And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? End quote. Now, Jews commonly thought that if bad things happened to you, then it was because you had done something to deserve it. You sinned in some especially grotesque way, so this was God punishing you for being a worse sinner than every other sinner. So Jesus is speaking into this mindset by asking, hey, do you think these guys who were murdered while they were making sacrifices, do you think this happened because they're worse sinners than other Galileans? But when we think about it, this is not just a Jewish mindset. I would say that many people in our churches, in our culture, in our time, view things in a similar way. I mean, how many people, and you may be one of them, it's okay, it's a safe space, that think good things should happen to those we label as good? And we think justice demands that bad things must happen to those who we label as bad. Look, we think this way too so often. So Jesus is about to surprise all the people in verses 3 through 5. Quote, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. End quote. So Jesus tells us no, they didn't die because they're the worst sinners. He also alludes to another tragedy that took 18 people's lives. One resource that I read speculated that the Tower of Siloam could have been part of the wall that surrounded Jerusalem. Near one part of the wall was a pool by the same name, Siloam. And that speculation makes sense to me. We just can't really confirm much about this. Though events like that would have been jarring to all who saw it or all who heard of it, They were not uncommon tragedies in the ancient world, and history really doesn't give us any more confirmable information. But anytime there is a sudden loss of life that just like comes out of nowhere, it can be something that spurs reflection. In reference to both events, Jesus says the exact same thing word for word. He says, quote, No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. End quote. There's two significant parts to his answer, and we'll have to address them separately. The first will simply focus on the no. Tragedies do not come into a person's life because they're the worst sinners. Jesus has clearly stated this twice. 
Do you know what that means? That means that karma is not a real thing. It's actually a super arrogant notion if we really think about it. Karma will teach you that if you do good, then good things will happen, or if you do that which is bad, bad things will happen. What you put out there into the universe will come back to you. You get what you deserve. There's a song lyric by a wildly popular artist who I will not be naming in this episode, and she concludes her song with the words, Karma's a relaxing thought. See, she believes she has done good and that she deserves only good to be returned to her. That which she has put out will come back to her. Now, she misunderstands the notions of sin and grace. We ask, why do bad things happen to good people? Bad people deserve the bad things, right? Not the good people. Again, we misunderstand sin and grace. If you really work through Genesis chapter 3, and this is when, where Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden and also where God is explaining to them the consequences and the effects of sin. So if you work through Genesis 3, you're going to see the effects of sin are far greater than most realize. In that chapter, God explains to them that as a consequence of Adam and Eve's rebellion against a holy and righteous God, that human relationships with one another are now broken. That human relationships with creation itself is now broken. And even our relationship with our own bodies, yes, even the human body, have endured the curse of sin. Our very nature has changed. Everything has changed. Think of what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3. Quote, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one, end quote. All of mankind is corrupted. Not one of us does good. The psalmist, under the inspiration and the direction of the Holy Spirit, emphasizes not even one. So not even you, maybe especially not you. I don't know who you are. Life is not fair, but let me tell you, that is a good thing. For no one has done good, no, not one. If karma was a real deal, it would be game over for every single one of us. We would all be given our one-way ticket into the lake of fire for all eternity. We have this habit of downplaying our sin and exaggerating our good so that we believe ourselves to have earned more than we have. We all enjoy pure grace from God. We learn at the very core of the gospel message that we are totally bankrupt of all righteousness. Yet the problem is that we need perfect righteousness to stand before our perfectly righteous God. And since the bankrupt have no way to make themselves rich towards God, God himself wrapped himself in flesh, lived a perfectly righteous life as a man, died on the cross as the penalty for sinners like you and I, and then gave us his perfect righteousness righteousness. The gospel at its core is anti-karma. We do not get what we deserve and we should be forever grateful for what we deserve is hell and what we are given is God himself. There's also this notion that we need to understand of common grace. Common grace is a way to describe all the good blessings that God gives people that are part of everyday life. 
I want you to think of what Jesus preached in Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 and 45, quote, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for... He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust, end quote. The common grace examples here are sunshine and rain. It matters not if someone is good or evil, just or unjust. They receive the common grace blessings of sunshine and rain, making it possible for crops to grow and families to be fed. Listen, the air in your lungs right now are not dependent on you being righteous or unrighteous, but by the grace that God is affording you in this moment. Your heart continuing to pump, the cells in your body doing that which they're supposed to do, all examples of the common grace of God. We do not get what we deserve, and we should be very thankful for that. Listen, I am only mentioning the idea of common grace here because it adds to the point that life is not fair, and that's really good news for us all. If life happened to be fair, we would have no sunshine, for we do not deserve it. We would get no rain, for we do not deserve it. We'd have no oxygen, for we do not deserve it. We would have a lot of people who could not breathe and who would have to go unfed. That may sound harsh, but please remember, we are chronically bad at exaggerating our own good in front of a truly good, perfect, and righteous God. And we are just as chronically bad at downplaying our sin before that very same God. You're a bigger sinner than you know, and He's a better Savior than you realize. So no, when bad things happen in life, they're not judgments from God. They're not because that person deserved it more than everyone else, because if we are honest and if we see clearly, we will see that none of us deserve good, because none of us are good, not even one. Now, the second thing we need to realize in the words that Jesus is teaching here is he says, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We quickly see that repentance is a life or death situation. You see, the tragedies that we talked about, they're outcomes of a sinful world. They're not judgments because those people are worse than the rest of us. If this were remotely true, we would have all perished by now. But Jesus says, let it be a reminder that repenting of our own sin is a life and death situation. Anyone, anywhere could die this very day, could die this very moment. There have been times I've heard news of someone's passing and it was so unexpected and it was so unbelievable that my first thought was that I heard the news wrong or maybe I was putting the wrong name with the wrong person because there's just no way that healthy, youngish individual could have passed from such things. It just didn't make sense that my brain wouldn't wrap around it. Yet the truth is that none of us are promised tomorrow. We busy ourselves today with things that won't matter for very long and live as though we will not and cannot die, but we can die, and one day we will die, then what matters most will surely crystallize in front of our very eyes. Only Christ belongs at the top of our priority list, but in that moment after death it will be too late. What's done is done. That is why repent and believe were constantly at the core of the messages that were preached. 
We believe in Christ. We believe in His sinless life. We believe in His death in our place. And we believe in His resurrection. True belief spurs repentance. It is among the markers of real belief, of real salvation. It is not a work to earn salvation, but rather a fruit of salvation. If I could put it in other terms, Repentance is not the cause of salvation, but rather it is one of the effects of salvation. To help us understand this, Jesus will unpack this idea with a parable, starting in verse 6, quote, And he told this parable, A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. End quote. So a man plants a vineyard. And he has this fig tree in this vineyard, and he expects figs to grow from the fig tree. It's kind of what fig trees are known for. So he goes and he checks on it and checks on it. Nothing. After three years, this fig tree has still bore him no fruit. I mean, he's ready to chop that sucker down. The vine dresser says that he wants to put some manure around it and give it another year. And still, if no fruit, then okay, let's chop it down. Now, this parable, in my mind, should connect the Bible reader straight to John 15. I want you to listen to these familiar words found in John 15, verses 1 through 5. Quote, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. End quote. Now, real quick, who is the vine dresser? Well, that's the Father. Who produces fruit? Those who are in Christ, who are abiding in Christ. Who doesn't produce fruit? Those who are not connected to Christ. If you are in Christ, you bear fruit. If you're not, you don't. This stuff gets real simple, real direct, real fast. Are we producing fruit in our life? Now, the fruit I want us to key in on here is the one that connects to the parable, and that's the fruit of repentance. Is there a rhythm in our life where we are convicted of sin and then turn from that sin? Is that a thing that happens in our life? Because what Jesus has clearly been teaching is that repentance is a clear indicator whether someone is or is not in Christ. The parable shows a patient God who comes year after year to check on this fruit. He doesn't expect his children to have it all together overnight. Year after year, he waited for the tree to produce. And here's a key thing that I want you to understand. When the tree produces, the vine dresser prunes. Why? Because he wants it to produce more. 
That means he wasn't looking for the tree to be booming with fruit right off the bat. He wasn't looking for the tree to have everything figured out to be walking in perfection. No, he was looking for the tree to have something budding somewhere. One little fig somewhere, anywhere. He was looking for anything, but he was finding nothing. If he had found one little fig, he takes that act of faith that is showing of true belief and he grows it. He makes it grow more and more and more. That's why when Paul was at the end of his life and he calls himself, depending on your translation, the the chief of sinners or sinners of whom he is the foremost in his letter to Timothy. It's not that he sinned more when he was older than when he was younger. Not at all. He had walked with Jesus. He had bore a ton of fruit. And the vine dresser, who is faithful, had grown more and more fruit out of Paul. So Paul is at this stage of his life when he has repented of so much, making his eyes all the more open, all the more aware of him being a great sinner and Christ being a great Savior. So here's the call. You don't know how much time you've got left. You say you believe in Christ, but when's the last time you've turned away from a sin because Christ called it a sin? How often does that happen? Do you see yourself progressively turning from that which God calls sin? Do you see yourself that as a result of repentance, slowly progressing towards Christ? I'm not asking, are you producing bushels of fruit here? I'm asking, are you being faithful to repent of wherever the vine dresser is bringing to your attention? We're talking about small steps here. We're talking about taking what the Lord puts in front of you, what the Lord convicts you that says, hey, this is not my way. You taking that thing and being like, you know what, God, you're right. I was wrong. Let me leave this in the dust. However big or small that thing is. And that takes faith. That shows true belief in Christ. Because just as Noah believed God by building an ark, we're believing God by obeying Him, by repenting of what He calls sin. Take the smallest step. Don't worry if you're not producing bushels. Aim for the fig. And then aim for two figs. And three figs. And four as God faithfully and patiently and graciously prunes you into being more like Christ. The challenge is to see the immeasurable worth of Christ now, today, before it's too late. And you never know when too late is. So let us stop with the procrastinating and start with the pruning and say, God, I believe you. I am taking you at your word. And I, since I believe you and I trust you, I am going to leave this behind and pursue you. I'm going to leave this lust behind and pursue you. I'm going to leave this deceitful nature behind and pursue you. I'm going to leave this jealousy, this bitterness, this anger behind and pursue you because it is you that has eternal worth. And nothing, and I mean nothing, can compare. Thanks for listening to the Steadfast Podcast. I want to remind you that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Paul wrote this, quote, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, end quote. 
So in light of biblical truth, let us be steadfast, immovable. Let us remember that through Jesus, not one labor is in vain, not one trial is in vain, not one effort in all of our lives is in vain. Because he gives purpose. And that purpose rings through eternity. That's all I've got for you today. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, if you've got questions you would like answered, you can email me at matt at steadfastpodcast.com.